This week on the show, we have a special episode because we have an interview finally uh, on this audio format now uh, with Trenton Schultz about his early days uh, with FreeBSD, RobotOS, Qt, and more. So hopefully that's interesting to you. And next week, we have a regular episode as always. ESD Now, episode 321, The Robot OS, recorded for the 23rd of October 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedikt Treuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And as mentioned in the cold opening, we'll have a little bit of a special this time. Uh, so we have an interview that's a bit longer. So we thought this is a special episode since it's our first uh, recording of this type since we switched to audio only. So uh, enjoy our interview with Trenton Schultz. Welcome to our first interview in our audio-only format that we finally managed to actually schedule and made happen. Uh, so we managed to drag Drenton Schultz before the camera or before the actually microphone. And he will be talking to us about a little bit more about robot OS on FreeBSD. Uh, so first, welcome to the show. Uh, and uh, can you tell us a little bit first about yourself since you hasn't, haven't been on the show yet and how you got started with BSD? Uh, sure. Well, thank you very much, Benedict. Um, yeah, so my name is Trenton Schultz. Um, now I work as a researcher at uh, the Norwegian Computing Center. Um, but earlier, uh, I've been a PhD student and a software engineer. Um, and how I got started in, in BSD was basically when I started doing my bachelor back in uh, Minnesota in the late 90s. And it was a, I remember it was a game night uh, at the, one of the computer labs and everybody was allowed to like bring in and play computer games on the lab computers. Uh, except there were a couple of people in the back of the room who had brought in their own computers. And the reason they had done that is because then they could access the network and they were like installing this weird DOS thing on their computers, or at least that's what it looked like to me. And, and so I was just went and asked, like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we're installing uh, FreeBSD. And I'm like, well, what is FreeBSD? And they're like, it's, it's an operating system. <laughs> and I was like, you mean like, like Windows or whatever? And like, yeah, but it's Unix or something like that. And I had heard about Unix at that point, so I was kind of interested in it. So that's kind of how I got started. <laughs> with working with FreeBSD. So like within a week or two, I had brought my computer in and installed it. And then like it was about like three of us at the uh, university who were working with FreeBSD and then like kind of sending questions back and forth to each other or looking in the mailing lists and, uh, and things like that. Um, I learned a lot about how, like I, I think I installed FreeBSD 2.2.5, I believe, was the version that was that we had. Um, <laughs> and of course, the thing that was interesting was just getting the software to work. So I remember working, uh, like I was complaining that like the sound didn't work, and I wanted to like listen to music or or something like that. <laughs> and uh, that meant upgrading to current 
Or so I had a friend who had no problem, uh, you know, running Build World on my computer and upgrading it to current. Uh, of course, then like other things didn't work. So, so I got to learn a little bit about like how all this, uh, <laughs> how these operating system things work. So I guess that's kind of how I got introduced to BSD. And in some ways, that's kind of what ended up like getting me my uh, first job, my first real job, I would say. And uh, actually, in some ways, getting me over to Norway. So, yeah. <laughs> mm, interesting. Tell us a little bit about how that you got that first job related to BSD. Well, it's it was sort of tangentially. So um, I was finished, or rather, while I was doing my computer science studies, one of the things I was interested in was being able to do graphics on computers. And since I was using FreeBSD and the X, X window system, I wanted to do graphics on that. And I was looking for toolkits that I could work with to, to do that. And since we, in, at that time, at the or that college, they were teaching us how to do um, C++ programming, I found the Qt library, or Qt as it's called among all the people who who program or who are who are the programmers for it. So I uh, basically started like working on some small Qt programs on on my own, and then I kind of rolled them all up into a little package, sent them off to Trolltech, and uh, with my resume, uh, <laughs> which I had written in plain text. Um, but they were looking for people, so it was okay. And um, I think there was a real appeal at that time that um, Norway kind of had a shortage of uh, C++ programmers who weren't in the oil industry. So, um, so it was easy. <laughs> like, so the fact that I actually wanted to come to Norway, like that, that was great. So I ended up coming to, to Norway and um, eventually, that's a long story in and of itself, um, but then I got a, a FreeBSD box while I was here, or when I got to Trolltech. And at that time, I was kind of helping out with uh, the, the um, Qt embedded port, which was basically using the frame buffer. And of course, I was interested in trying to get that to work with, uh, with uh, FreeBSD, but I didn't know nearly enough how to do that. But there was a virtual frame buffer that worked on X11 and was just basically a memory mapped uh, shared memory. So you could actually display things and use the cute embedded uh, like windowing system and everything. And I remember the first weekend I was there or the first like couple of days I was there um, fixing the, uh, the cute, how does it say, the cute virtual frame buffer to actually work on FreeBSD because it was just using some semaphore things that were using very Linux-specific calls and then just changing them over to use the FreeBSD ones. And then worked on both of them. So I think that was probably like the first commit I did to Qt, actually. I was actually shared a room uh, with this guy named Brad who also was a giant FreeBSD person. He had worked on the black box window manager which was kind of the forerunner to the Fluxbox window manager. So we had we were like the two FreeBSD people at uh, at uh, at Trolltech, which was the idea was to kind of at least make sure that we were somewhat semi-operable on other operating systems or other Unixes, I should say. Oh, that's great. How long were you there? Uh, I was at uh, Trolltech uh, for 
well, I guess seven years until they became part of Nokia. And then I stayed on for a year at Nokia as well. So what it was, I, at that point, I, was, I had moved off from FreeBSD uh, and was working with the Mac. Um, the main reason for that was um, this was in the, I guess, mid-FreeBSD 4 days. And um, the thing was that, like, you kind of got into this re- interesting state with ports where things would kind of get out of date and you would sometimes need to update one port, which you would maybe download a tarball of that one port from CDROM.com or, or whatever and build that. And then everything would get out of whack. And then you would run this port upgrade utility and try to rebuild all your ports. And it was really getting annoying. Uh <laughs> There was nothing like package or anything that that we have uh, these days. Exactly. So I think it was a point there where I was like, okay, I'm willing to let a uh, a vendor uh, do all that extra maintenance work so I could program because that was the point. Like Trolltech had hired me to to program not uh, or program on Qt, not like maintain my system. Yes, or maintain an operating system's uh, use of Qt and so on. Yeah, in some in some sense, like that was the other thing too, right? So, you would mostly run KDE or other things, and of course, there was this whole issue of if you would re- you were rebuilding Qt all the time, like how much which Qt were you actually using in different things to like notice bugs or stuff. So, yeah, you got into these weird issues. So, so I, I'd stayed away from, or I'd moved over to the Mac for a while then, and then. Um, yeah, I had basically finished up one of these big projects, which was porting the Qt, um, or helping out leading this port of Qt to the Coco, um, windowing, uh, toolkit that's on the Mac. And then, uh, once that was kind of finished up, I kind of felt like, yeah, I need to try something different. So I jumped into research, which, uh, is interesting in its own ways. <laughs> So what kind of things uh, have you been doing research on? Um, well, I, I just uh, I just turned in my uh, PhD dissertation on human-robot interaction. Um, so what I was dealing with there was kind of two separate points. Um, one point was looking at this idea of um, having robots in the home in possible future scenarios. And then what you would do in, in those cases, or one thing that you kind of have to be concerned about are what sort of privacy issues are arise with having like basically a, a computer with lots of sensors that moves around your house. Uh, so what do you do with that to make things sort of, uh, or what sort of issues do you need to think about for that? And then the other thing kind of goes back to uh, my uh, GUI programming uh, days at at Qt, and I was I'm interested in animation techniques and ways that robots can move to make them a, like a bit more lively or a bit more like entertaining. So I was also looking at how you could use animation techniques to move robots and how that affects people interacting with them. So yeah, I've just turned it in. We'll find we'll find out how that works, or we'll find out what the committee thinks of it, and yeah. But that's my most recent research, at least. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's things like uh, using animation techniques for how the robot moves to make it, you know, less jarring and less. How could you say robot-like in in a yes. in a sense? <laughs> the first thing that I thought of, like, let's make it look like drunk. 
Like, let's move it not in a straight line anymore. Just <laughs> yeah, that can be a, that can be kind of a fun uh, a fun uh, way of messing with the local planner, so as to speak. <laughs> I, I think the the thing that's also a bit interesting is that you have all these physical constraints that you don't have when you're like maybe animating on the screen, right? If you want to make a, a smooth animation, you know, you kind of. Or, or if you want something to move instantly across a screen, for example, you just basically say, you know, in the next frame you're going to draw on the other side of the screen, right? And and a robot can't do that. It's kind of got yeah. So you need to accelerate and then decelerate and exactly, exactly. So so you're kind of figuring things out in a, in a different way, but it was it was good stuff and it was fun. So yeah, so I, I'm going to probably be working a little bit more with robots in the future as well. So. We'll see what sort of funding proposals get funded, or what proposals get funded. That's always how research is. Yeah, yeah. Chasing the next money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, but is that um, related to your work with uh, Robot OS? Yeah, well, in a way, <laughs> like, like most, like most things uh, for for me with FreeBSD, it's always kind of a, a side hustle type thing or something. It seems. Um, so when I when I started at the university, the university was uh, so it was the University of Oslo, and they're they're very, at least the informatics department is pretty open about what you know you can run whatever you know computer you want in general, like it's just that you're going to kind of have to if it's like a Windows machine, they of course will administrate everything, but if you're running a Mac or something else, you pretty much have free reign. So I said, like, okay, I'm going to get one of these nice new ThinkPads and try running FreeBSD on it again, because I hadn't done it for a while. And actually, at that exact point, all the Macs, the new MacBooks had come out, and I was very unimpressed with what, what they were offering as far as, like, something that I could open up and repair. Mm, I hear you. <laughs> Having had to do that with Macs before, I was, uh, we could say, less than confident that... Uh, that that wouldn't happen. So, um, so yeah, so I got this, uh, got a ThinkPad installed. Uh, I had to install uh, uh, what was called at the time TrueOS uh, to get the wi wireless card and everything working. And I used that, uh, was able to use that for about a year, and there was really no problem for the work I was doing. Um, and then I would use virtual machines to run ROS, uh, or the robot operating system, or ROS. Um, I guess I should maybe stop and explain what ROS is before going a bit further. <laughs> um, so ROS is basically sort of a, it's a way of uh, kind of, it's a middleware that can kind of communicate between different nodes on a network that it builds. And the idea is that you can create topics that publish information Uh, for example, it can be pictures from a video camera, it can be uh, sensor readings, um, it can be commands to tell you how fast your, um, your servo should be moving or, or things like that. And the thing is, is that it can be distributed, so you can run it on different computers. And at the same time, it's a very standardized interface. So basically, once you have a driver on your robot that can basically publish information in a good way. You can just hook it up to the node and everyone can like use it. And it's a very open source uh, project, so it's easy to get all these packages. So you normally don't have to um, 
in the way of most researchers, you don't you don't always have them all the time in the world to to solve all the problems. So you find a library that's been done already. So it's a pretty nice little uh, system of packages and uh, uh, communication, and it was set up to only work on Linux, more or less. You could run it in like uh, with Homebrew on the Mac and using, um, I guess, the Linux layer on Windows 10. But they they kind of had set up. Uh, it currently was set up as that they would do distros that basically followed uh, Ubuntu. So when Ubuntu did an LTS release, they would do an LTS release, and they would basically support that on all the robots or whatever until the the time ran out for that. And yeah, so I had this FreeBSD box, and I had to start working with one of these robots um, that was using ROS. And I was like, well, I don't want to have to do all this network hopping to get a virtual machine to talk directly to this robot. Um, and I just thought I would try to port it. So I downloaded the sources and, yeah, basically started working through building that. And it's a jo- most of the stuff is all written in C++ or Python. It's all based on CMake stuff. And as far as I could tell, most of that stuff is already in, in, uh, in FreeBSD. So, you know, if I could follow these scripts, it would probably work okay-ish. And... I got pretty far that I got like the basic communication stuff done and I was like, okay, this, this might actually be something I could do. I could actually get this up and, and working because I managed to get that done in basically like a, a day while I was, you know, just having that compile in the background while I worked on other stuff. But then I realized I needed the graphical components that are also part of ROS. So ROS also has a lot of debugging tools and ways of visualizing data and, and simulating uh, robots as well. Because you don't want to, um, how could you say, blow up a robot by uh, putting bad code on it. You want to simulate it first. Um, so then I had I started to look at like, okay, I can start to try to port these other programs as well to get like a desktop version of ROS. And I kind of had to stop, uh, or I started, but then it got to be really tough because like the fir- one of the first things that needed to be built was this OpenCV computer vision library. Uh, or, and at that time, like FreeBSD had version two, but this needed version three. And that was like a giant port uh, or rather, that was just a giant thing to be built. And then at the same time, there was also, um, it needed Python Qt bindings, and that it didn't say for sure which ones it needed. And if you know the Qt community, there's at least two different types of Qt bindings that are available for Python. And um, yeah, it just got to be a mess. Uh, so I, I spent a few days on it, but then... I kind of realized um, I had to actually get this done quicker than spending time on getting this, uh, getting everything to compile. So I actually had to bite the bullet and uh, install um, install Ubuntu on the computer and just go and get things done, which was fine. I you know you have to make a a balance on things, but then I realized like well I could give this another shot because things have happened like. I, that, that incident was in 2017, we're in 2019, I saw that OpenCV had come in, 
Um, you know, we had like modern cute and everything. And yeah, I figured that this could just work. So, and then I also had like read um, Michael W. Lucas's book on jails. So I learned, uh, I had a lot much better grasp on how to use the jails. Uh, so then I was able to like, you know, open, create the jail, like copy or, you know, download the sources, install all the prerequisites and, and actually get compiling. Um, and of course I had created ports for some, some of these, uh, building tools that you need to use for Ross and put those in the ports tree as well. So it was really, it was really quite nice to use that in jails. It got rid of issues of knowing which cute bindings you needed and stuff, because of course you had a clean environment. Doesn't conflict with the, the version of cute you're trying to use for your desktop at the same time. You got it. <laughs> so I was, so I was like uh, very happy and wondering why I hadn't uh, did this earlier. But, you know, you need a bit of more under, you need, how could you say, it's difficult to just kind of step into jails. You kind of have to have a, do some reading to kind of really understand how they really work, I think. Yeah, uh, Michael Lucas found that when he went to write the jails book and found he had to write six other books first. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. And I've I've read those other six books and I, I, I believe he's correct because it's like, it is one of those things when you get to when you're reading a chapter in there and you're like, oh yeah, this earlier book. Like I remember, like you know, now I now I understand. Now I understand how this fits into using it in the jail. Well, yeah, it's like the the book on specialty file systems. Like, who's that book for? Well, it turns <laughs> out uh, if you're going to use NullFS and, and this other stuff and try to make it work in a jail, you need all this background, and it it just wasn't going to make sense to try to shoehorn that in at the beginning of the jail book or something. And so it, it kind of just ballooned. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was also like the dev FS uh, file system and everything was also something that was, well, someone who had been using Qt or I mean, sorry, FreeBSD four, and then uh, suddenly, uh, you know, having used the old make dev script and then finally finding that all these nodes are created for you automatically and that you can, you know, do all sorts of nice things, uh, assigning permissions and groups and running scripts. I was like, wow, this is like nice and modern. It's great. So, yeah, or even just the jails like hide everything except for the basic things that it needs, like dev null. Exactly. And it's like, oh, look, it, it, it can't see my hard drives. Mm. That's actually the way I'd prefer it. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, yeah, I guess the last thing I'll say with that that was nice was that I also was able to finally build a cups jail which i had tried and failed multiple times to do after reading that book so so i i, I saw recently that uh, michael was saying that he had a uh, it wasn't the big sales winner but it's definitely a great book so yeah <laughs> no it's definitely good yeah you, you might not think you need it but once you read it you'll realize there's all kinds of ways you could be using this uh to make your life easier yeah back to to the raw stuff so I had gotten with that with using those jails. Uh, I was able to build a build the comm stuff up again, which is the basic communications things, and then build up the desktop uh, side of it as well. And yeah, I basically got a working uh, ROS thing that would work with the the basic tools. So I could use the graphing tools. I could do the visualization tools and stuff. I still didn't have the simulators um, because nobody's ported those yet. Um, 
which I guess can make sense. It's it's kind of those those simulators are kind of a specialized thing for robots only. And if you don't have all of Ross there, there's not much point in porting it on its own. So that's a gazebo, or the simulators are are a gazebo, which is like sort of the big one there. Though, as far as I know, some people are considering going over to using things like Unity or Unreal as well. But I don't think they have the same physics engines as the gazebo simulator. So yeah, so then I got that, and then I decided I would, uh, once I got that in pretty good order, I thought, like, this might be an interesting talk for uh, EuroBSDCon. <laughs> so then I decided to write up a uh, abstract for that and send it off to EuroBSDCon. Uh, so uh, was EuroBSDCon your first BSD conference? Yeah, it, it was. Um, I think, because, like, if I remember right, BSDCan was, like, early 2000s, wasn't it? Uh, like the first BSD can. Uh, yeah. And that was like the thing, right? So I had, there was like a, I remember there was like some sort of free BSD conference like in 2000 or whatever. But at that point I was a bachelor student. I didn't have money to travel or anything like that. And then afterwards, um, when I think the BSD can thing started, I was in, in Norway and I was just like, oh, I, you know, I was sort of interested in it at at the beginning, but I was like, that's a long ways to travel when I don't know how what it's going to be like or, or anything. And yeah, I would say it's, yeah, jet lag kind of sucks and everything. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> there's other things you end up doing. But I, I think that, that was kind of the nice thing about EuroBSDCon, like the fact that it was coming to uh, Lillehammer, Norway, was that like, oh, like now there really is no excuse not to, to go. And uh, yeah, it was, I thought it was a, it's a worthwhile thing so yeah I, it was my first conference and yeah it was quite enjoyable um it was really neat to to run into all these these uh different people who have this interest in a in operating systems and actually being able to just kind of you know you can start a conversation with most everybody there and yeah find out something very interesting yeah that's true yeah and you know it can be really nice to just be in a room full of people that are also interested in this kind of niche thing you're interested in, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's just kind of, yeah, it's a fun thing. I mean, I've been to the, uh, like, cute developer summits and everything like that, or not, I, well, the, the cute developer days is what they were called back when I when I did, uh, did uh, cute. Um, it was always great to just kind of sit and talk with people and yeah, it's, it's one of those nice things about open source conferences in general that like you can find your group of people who are interested in similar things and yeah, talk with them and find out more interesting stuff as well. So yeah, there's interesting talks and there's interesting people to, to meet. Sorry. Uh, when we had the uh, social event, uh, we got to all sit around a table and we just had everybody to kind of tell a little bit of their story of, what they liked about BSD and how they got into it and stuff. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as we were just, you know, having dinner. Yeah, and it's also like, that's actually a very um, easy topic too, uh, at least for, I guess, not for the general population, uh, but for for people who are in, interested in BSD, like it's it's actually a kind of an interesting topic and everyone will have an interesting story or or an interesting use case, if nothing else, about why they use it, so... Yeah, yeah, and it, exactly. It's the kind of thing that everybody at the table will have something they can contribute. Whereas, you know, if we had picked 
a more specific topic like you know Tom's interest in the TCP/IP stack, uh, not everybody maybe would have contributed to the conversation in the same way. Indeed, indeed. And you know, it's kind of one of the things we've tried to do with the interviews on the show is is capturing that particular question: How did you get started? Because um, actually, uh, Dag Erling, who is the the head of the or hosting the conference this year, uh, he got into BSD because he used to build those um, assembly demo programs. Demo scene, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It would be like a little, like thirty kilobyte thing that would be like a, a half hour presentation with all these graphics, and it's like, how do they fit that in this thirty kilobyte executable? And he was looking for something a little better than MS DOS to base them on, and somebody gave him a FreeBSD CD, and that's how he got into FreeBSD. I'm like, that seems like an interesting path for someone who ends up, you know, doing. IT security and being the FreeBSD security officer for a while and mm. and doing PAM and all this authentication stuff uh, from those weird art demo things. <laughs> well, the demo scene, I think, was it was also very big in in Norway as as well. Mm-hmm. So there was there there are still demo parties that I've like, um, or at least like I know people who are involved in that, and it's really quite interesting how they. They're still going on, and there's still some really quite amazing work that's going on, uh, especially when you're going for things like the smallest size executable um, or, like, you know, doing things in only software and stuff. So, yeah, it's quite an amazing scene. And, yeah, mm-hmm. could easily see somebody you know, like picking up for FreeBSD there to do something a bit different. Yeah. And I had the same with my first BSD conference because I said, it's in my country. Europe BSDCon travels around, it turns out. And so you have no excuse of saying no because whenever do you get the chance again when the conference is in your country? And so that's when I went and then subsequent conferences followed and here I am. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's why that's a good thing that EuroBSDCon is not in the same place every year. So um, as much as organizing is concerned with that as well, but um, it gives people the chance from different countries to go to a conference in their own country. And you get to experience the different culture in the different, uh, in different countries as well, which is kind of a fun part of being in Europe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's definitely, uh, for me, coming from North America, it's been a great excuse to go to quite a few different countries in Europe over the last 10 years. Mm. Yeah, indeed. I guess it hasn't quite, it's only been like seven years of me going, but, uh, you know, but just... That's still seven different countries. Exactly. Uh, uh, that I, you know, most of which I probably would have never visited. Uh, I wouldn't have had no reason to go otherwise, basically. Uh, so you enjoyed the conference? What, what would you say was the, the thing you enjoyed the most about the conference? Hmm... Well, uh, let's see. One thing I enjoyed was the tutorial the first day. Um, that was uh, Tom's tutorial on FreeBSD hardware hacking. Because um, I was just kind of interested. I had never done a lot of that stuff myself. I've always been involved with people who have, but I've never like actually got to sit down and try out some of this stuff myself. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, working on that. And yeah, we got to play with that hardware. I it's now sitting at home. I need to figure out a good use for it, but that's that's my problem. Uh, and then uh, most of the talks were that I attended were also really interesting. Um, and of course, now my I'm drawing a blank on <laughs> on all of them that I saw, but I really <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed. Um, yeah, I enjoyed the talks too, and I think the. But I mean, I, the other thing was also like um, I think the social event was really neat as well. Um, at least it was kind of a neat thing to actually kind of get around and and uh, 
talk with different people or get to know people as well. So I, I enjoyed that as well. So I guess uh, that was kind of like the thing for me was just uh, to be able to like hang out <laughs> a bit and, and talk with people. And then also, um, yeah, just kind of learn some new things about what's going on with current developments in all the BSDs. And yeah, just kind of seeing what's what's new and stuff. I think it's also kind of fun to actually sit and see some of those talks instead of like finding them later when they're posted online. Because uh, you also get a chance to at least ask some questions and stuff that you might not have had a chance to otherwise. So, so yeah, I would I would recommend it, if, especially if it's in your your if it's in a country that you're living in. Uh, it's and it's not a horrible burden to get to get to it. I would say definitely uh, do it. Um, it's a it's a nice conference and and well well run. So mm-hmm. yeah, they did an exceptionally good job this year as well. Yeah, definitely. So can we look forward to seeing you at another conference someday? Maybe we'll we'll <laughs> see. Um, I think like in some ways that was like since I en- ended up actually doing a talk, it kind of made it a bit. Uh, on one hand, it made it easier because like then it was the the trip, the essentially the train ride from Oslo to to Lillehammer was paid for and and stuff and the ticket to into the conference. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean we'll have to see. I have to balance it against the uh, how research what what I'm doing in, in research and stuff. But uh, there's there's not a uh, yeah, I will say there's a chance. There's certainly a chance. Maybe greater than 50%. We'll see. Mm. Oh, you should have a lot of time after that PhD. <laughs> well, I they, they, they threw me right into work, so... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I guess I was a, a slightly irregular uh, PhD student in, in that sense that uh, like I, I was working for a research institute that really wanted me back. So I was happy to in that case it was very nice to to be able to um spend that last month or so writing and not have to worry about finding a job afterwards which a, which a lot of phd students do have to think about so yeah that's stressful yeah 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 or it can be yeah indeed um, indeed so switching gears a little bit, um, yes. since you started with the BSDs and then had a little bit of a break and then came back to it, do you have some like tips or advice for people who are starting out with the BSDs, what they should do or what they should avoid? Uh, some pitfalls maybe? Hmm. Well, I think, well, but this, well, I will say when I started with, free, with FreeBSD, it was really kind of important to be able to use things that you're, you had friends around that were using as, as well. Um, because the thing was that the internet was much different in the late 90s than it is today, um, as far as being able to find information and, and stuff. Um, so the nice thing was that you could kind of get real-time help right then and there. So I guess I would say one thing is like if you can, uh, if you can get into BSDs with a, with a friend... That will be helpful because then they can kind of you can kind of help each other as you kind of discover things. Um, although I think like yeah, I think in in general it's way easier to even just like start working with with a with a BSD uh, since they're so easy to get a hold of a virtual a virtual machine uh, thing. You can even get you know 
you can download images and, and everything now without having to even install it. So I think that's also like, I think the thing that I would say is like, yeah, just go ahead and try it out um, and, and see how it goes with, on, a, on something like VirtualBox or, or VMware or, or whatever your, your favorite virtualization platform is. Um, because in general, you, you can't get in too much trouble, right? Like worst case is you can always just delete that machine and, and start again. So I think that's actually pretty nice. And on the other hand, if you really want to try doing it for your daily driver, I mean, it depends on the work that you're doing. But I think nowadays it might be slightly easier than how it was like, well, again, if I go back to late 90s, or early 2000s, because so many things now are running on web pages that uh, in general are fairly using web standards so as long as you have a decent web browser which um you know with freebsd you have like firefox and chromium that are there and are fairly up to date like you can actually you know use most of those websites so i think that's yeah i guess that's like the thing it's like you you can be how could you say less worried about breaking things so you can just actually kind of go out and do it. I think also even if you if you were, for example, using FreeBSD and you have a ZFS thing built in on your laptop, you can also, as long as you remember to take snapshots or have an auto snapshot building thing, you can also be pretty fearless in what you're doing there as well. So I guess that would be the one thing. If I guess I would say a tip, if you are going to use ZFS, you should really um, set up the auto ZFS tools pretty early when you get started. So you actually are automatically doing snapshots. Uh, so that you can actually roll back. Because I think, you know, it's it's easy to say like, oh, you just roll back to a snapshot. But if you forgot to take a snapshot, you're kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's like you should have saved your work. It's like, yeah, but now I'm in this situation. <laughs> and <laughs> so I, I think, I guess that would be the, I, I guess I could think of if you were actually going to play around with FreeBSD would, maybe in the installer at some point to have an option to like, would you like to have some sort of automated snapshot thing? Just thinking about it now, but yeah, that'd be decent. Just saying, you know, uh, in addition to whatever manual snapshots I might decide to make, please also make a snapshot every 15 minutes and keep, you know, the last four hours and then some grandfathering type scheme. Yeah. I think that's the only, I guess, yeah, if I was going to have a tip on that is like, yeah, Set that up because then you can be much more fearless in what you're doing. You don't have to be too worried about breaking stuff. And then you can use boot environments as well. So that, that's nice with it. And yeah, I guess the, the one I didn't really think about that much uh, is the fact that nowadays with VMs, you know, in the 90s, if you were going to put FreeBSD on a machine, it was probably going to be the only OS on the machine or you might fight with dual booting or whatever. But you were pretty much giving the whole machine over to it. Whereas with the virtual machines, you can basically completely risk-free in a, a FreeBSD machine and start playing with it without having to risk, you know, messing up your computer and having to fix it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think the only thing that becomes a constraint then, then is just having enough, like, disk space to kind of dedicate to it. Uh, so, like, if you want to, I guess if you want to install a lot of software and see how that works, you kind of have to figure that out up front. But, I mean, otherwise it's... It's really nice. I, I have to admit, like when I when I was first starting to to look at uh, FreeBSD again, that was the first thing I did. Was I, I 
loaded up a virtual box and put a FreeBSD image on there and just tried to see how it kind of worked. So I would have an idea of what I should do before I did it for real. Mm, planned it a little bit, yeah. Well, you don't want to have to reinstall again. That's, <laughs> or rather, or rather, if you've done a lot of work and then you find out you have to reinstall again, then that's kind of like annoying. Yeah, after a while, <laughs> it gets old. <laughs> yeah, that's one option we'd like to look at adding someday is is being able to have the installer be like, oh, I see you already have a FreeBSD installed. Maybe you've broken it. Um, would you like us to do a fresh install as a new boot environment, but leave all your old files behind so that you know you can still get at them. Mm. But you'll have a system that boots cleanly again. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, more more work for the future. Um. <laughs> and I, actually, uh, before we let you go, I had another question about the robot OS. You just talked a little bit about it and how it's uh, distributed or whatever. Is that like where one robot would consist of multiple computers, or is it more about making many robots kind of work together? Oh, uh, I guess it could be both if you wanted. Um, basically, it's these nodes that you create. And so each node has basically certain topics and stuff. So a robot it's in itself could have lots of nodes. Um, so in one of my research projects, I was using this, um, well, uh, to make it simple, I was using a turtle bot which is basically a, a robot that has like a, a, a LiDAR sensor on top that spins around to kind of find its location. And then so, but, and it also had wheels to turn and everything. And so each of those things was like, there was a topic that would say like what speed the robot was going, like how it was turning or, or moving. There was another topic that was getting the data from the LiDAR and stuff. And then the whole point was, is that you could write another node that would like, oh, I'll listen to this information from the LiDAR and then use that, you know, and then use that to figure out a map location. And then I'll use another node, which is talking about a, uh, you know, which has the, the planner for the robot and then tell the robot where to move and, and stuff like that. So, so basically uh, what you do is you end up creating a lot of different nodes and most of the nodes are, well, nodes are written in either C++, Python, or Common Lisp. And in general, they'll be fast enough for what you're trying to do, as long as you're not trying to do real-time stuff. That's what ROS2 is about. Uh, so, But if you're trying to do stuff that's kind of, sort of close to real-time-ish and not flying in the air, flying in the air is one thing that was also kind of difficult with the ROS1 stuff. Or potential for problems, let's just say, where where latency could become a, a real issue. Um, yes, an unexpected spike of latency, and suddenly you're doing not the right thing. Yeah, and if you have wind that picks up or anything like that, you you could be in big trouble. So, um, so yeah, so but of course you you know you could set it up that you have like all these different robots that are broadcasting information on one node or all listening on one command node and then you just give one command and they all could kind of you know interpret that as they want so it, it's a neat it's very much an interesting uh system uh like it's used for a lot of robots nowadays um but like a lot of the stuff is very research oriented so the other thing is that most of the ROS stuff does not, at least the ROS 1.0 stuff, does not take uh, security so much in mind. Um, the, 
Which is kind of, yeah, it, it's kind of a uh, using the FTP model you can think of where you would like, you, you go to a known port and then it gives you a, another UDP port for listening on, but you don't know what that UD, UDP port is. So basically, if you have a firewall, the first thing they tell you to do is like, well, could you create a VPN between you and the robot? You know, so, so then you can talk to each other. So uh, I, I believe they've, tri they've tried to fix that in the later versions, but I remember that was actually a, an issue um, here at the university when you would try to, because the wireless network in general needs to be closed down. And suddenly you're like, I need to open all these ports, which I don't know what they are until, you know, we actually make a connection. And They're kind of assigned <laughs> randomly when you try to connect to the robot. Exactly. And then, yeah, then it kind of, uh, yeah, that doesn't work so well. So you have to kind of create a very specific, small, closed network. So, yeah. But in general, I would say nowadays, most robots should probably be on a closed network. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that gets back to more the, the research you were doing about uh, how to apply privacy and, and stuff to the robots. You know, if the robot's got cameras for eyes and is recording what it's seeing, uh, how do you decide what to do with that and so on? Right. And well, and then there's the other question of like, well, what is what is actually happening with that, uh, the camera images and stuff? If the camera, camera image is something that's just being used locally for something, like if it's a depth camera, it's just trying to figure out the distance between different objects and all that's being used is to like find the robot's location and you know plan where it's supposed to go and that stuff is actually never going off to the internet or anything like it's all being processed locally then it's not such a big privacy issue you could say i mean you could pretty safely argue but like if it's the idea is like oh no that's going to be sent further on to, you know, the company that's providing this so that they have some insurance in case something bad happens, then it kind of opens up, you know, lots of different issues. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, it's like, I left the robot at home and I want to be able to see what it can see from my phone. You know, who else can also see this? And and yeah, especially like you were saying, if if I own the robot, but it's from this company and the robot, you know, apparently causes some problem, uh, or gets into trouble or breaks something or whatever, uh, and I, I claim this is how it happened, does the company have the right to use the footage that shows that, no, it was me kicking the robot that caused the problem. <laughs> right, exactly. So there's like a whole bunch of issues that are, yeah, you could say need to be looked at there. And that was like one of the things. Is like I could just take a look at a very small uh, case, which was just kind of, like, here's a way that we can kind of find these privacy issues. So I, I had a little framework for doing dealing with that. And then, yeah, then it was basically like, yeah, and now it's up to other people to do more. Or I guess me to write future uh, a future proposal and try to take that up. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, leave something for the uh, future scientists. There's, oh, there's still work. <laughs> <laughs> there is plenty. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was at this robot conference last week and the one of the points there was also like just looking at computer vision uh, issues or, or like anything if you're looking at having like a car being driven by a robot, right? Uh, there are so many issues or research problems that have not been solved and will not be solved for a long time that uh, there's plenty, plenty of things for the future scientists. So no problems. 
<laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, and even you get things like, uh, you know, depending on how you did the machine learning for the robot, if it's doing facial recognition or something, where is it getting the database from? And how do you make sure the robot isn't accidentally racist? <laughs> exactly. Um, there's so much in, in involved in that. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's a point there where you actually kind of have to have a maybe apply other approaches as well to try to balance things out. Um, but that's a very difficult problem, but um, it's one that people are looking at. So. Yeah, and, you know, but at the same time, you kind of have to refine the scope and pick one problem to solve at a time because otherwise it just balloons and there's, it's like, oh, we everything is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, well, was there anything else you'd like to talk about before we let you go? I can't really think of anything off the top of my head other than a, what I should say is like, uh, thanks very much for the show you guys do. Uh, it's, it's kind of a highlight of the week um, just to kind of be able to, it's a way to kind of catch up on the, uh, the news uh, that's been going on in the BSD world. So I really enjoy that. And yeah, looking forward to having uh, more interviews. So hopefully this was entertaining enough as well. Oh yeah. I think so. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to do it. And it was very nice to finally get to, or to first get to meet you at, at EuroBSDCon, because uh, I don't know that I would have ever run across you any other way. <laughs> no, I think that's kind of how it is, right? It's it's uh, mm -hmm. the BSD conferences give you a chance to actually meet all these people that you, yeah, wouldn't otherwise meet. Yeah, well, you know, for a lot of them, it's uh, meeting people who I maybe have interacted with online before, but also it's really nice to meet the, the people I didn't even know existed. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So. Thank you for coming on to the show and uh, good luck with your PhD and the future projects you're undertaking. Yeah, thank you. And we hope to see you at another conference again soon. So we hope you liked this interview and we have a little bit of Beastie Bits and announcements for you at the end. So uh, this is what we're going to get right into now. Yeah, uh, so very uh, big thanks to Trent for doing the interview uh, and for all of you for watching. But we weren't going to leave you with just an interview. So we have some Beastie Bits to remind you about, uh, especially as we're pre-recording the next couple episodes. So uh, announcements don't always fit. Um, first one. There's going to be a FreeBSD mini-conference at the linux.conf.au in Australia in 2020. Uh, and so this is uh, in the days leading up to linux.conf.au proper. They have mini-conferences for a number of different topics. And uh, the proposal this year is one of those to be FreeBSD, but we need to basically show that we're going to have enough uh, different speakers and so on that would be interested. Uh, so if you would like to present about FreeBSD at linux.conf.au, uh, please check out the link in the show notes to the FreeBSD Foundation's blog and uh, get your submissions in so that we can show that there is enough interest in order to make this happen. Yes, they're similar. Um, like these mini confs are comparable to, let's say, the BSD Dev Room at FOSDEM. And uh, it's uh, Australia, it's the Gold Coast. Uh, so if you're in the area or want to go, uh, that's definitely a place you should uh, talk about BSDs more. So submit a proposal and uh, hopefully you will be accepted. Other one that we have coming up, um, the Portland BSD Pizza Night is October 24th. Uh, so that's the day this comes out. Uh, so you might uh, have already missed it. But uh, is at 7 p.m. at Rudy's Gourmet Pizza. Uh, so make sure 
you check out Caligator, uh, which is the kind of calendar alligator or aggregator used in uh, Portland for events of this type. Uh, and so if you get subscribed there, you can get the notifications automatically uh, so that, you know, for example, if because of our recording schedule, you have missed the notification uh, about uh, tomorrow's pizza night or today's pizza night or whatever that works out to be, uh, then you will definitely get it next time. Yep, they're doing this regularly. Uh, and also, speaking of that, the New York City BSD user group, uh, their next meeting will be November 6th at uh, 6.45 at Suspenders. Uh, and they'll be doing an install fest, but also as a special treat, the SDF project will be bringing their Unix at 50 AT&T 605 terminal to the meeting. So if you would like to get to play with that, you should uh, definitely come check it out. Ooh, that sounds cool. And if you're a newbie, the installation workshop is a great way to get to know uh, the BSDs. And I guess there's a couple of people around who can uh, answer your questions if you get stuck somewhere. Thanks for the nice buck, folks, or the beast user groups there. Um, then I already started talking about it a little bit. Uh, FOSDEM in 2020, they have already started their calls for participation. Uh, there is the BSD dev room in particular. Um, so we have a little info page from Rodrigo who has organized and will also continue to organize this one um, in 2020. This will be uh, on the Sunday, so not the Saturdays that we got in earlier years. So don't get confused. Um, the submission deadline for that dev room is the 24th of November, but don't slack off, submit early, submit often, and the more we submit, the more chances we have to actually fill a whole day for BSDs. So this could be all kinds of BSD topics, whether you're a user, a developer, or sysadmin in some interesting ways that might be um, interesting for other people attending FOSDEM. So um, that is definitely something you should consider submitting to. And Rodrigo has put up a couple of information for the people who have never been to FOSDEM, uh, like transportation and venue map and uh, some information about, you know, what kind of topics we want to see. And so there's plenty of information on the page that we linked here in our show notes. So I would recommend uh, uh, checking that out. Uh, yep. And uh, lastly, if you were looking for a job that might involve actually working on FreeBSD and security and so on, the University of Cambridge is currently looking for uh, new research assistants and research associates to work on the Cherry compiler and OS support projects. Uh, so any past experience with FreeBSD or with Clang and LLVM would be particularly helpful. So uh, if you'd like to get to work with that kind of stuff and uh, work on interesting new uh, projects, then check out the job posting uh, from Cambridge University in the UK. So, yeah, so and with that, uh, we thank you again for listening to this special episode. And next week, we'll be back with a regular one. And uh, yeah, enjoy the time until then. And see you and listen, or you listen to us actually, <laughs> uh, then next week again. Yep. And remember, send any questions, comments, show ideas, uh, topics, stories, or feedback that you have to feedback at bsdnow.tv so that we can incorporate it into the show. 